So what should we consider? I have one um, question. Mm-hmm. So in meditation, um, as you get into those very uh, clear and um, very like joyous feelings, you start understanding the Dhamma at a much deeper level, or you feel that you do. Are there some tips and tricks to bring that back into day-to-day life? I sometimes feel that you walk out and you might have that afterglow for a day or two, and you try very hard to kind of keep that new outlook or that new state that you've right. um, achieved in meditation, but slowly you feel your old habitual condition set in, and you know there might be a slight change here, but it's not as pronounced or as um, um, as as great as the meditation was. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering if, uh, in your experience, there's been anything that have been aids that help you um, integrate that into your day to day. Well, I would say if you if you're if your underlying attitude to complexity and pressure, stress, those things which we all find difficult, is one of developing parami. Then when the delightful, tranquil states of mind, which come partially through sense deprivation, you know, part of that is just your senses aren't being stimulated Mm -hmm. and you've got enough wisdom not to stimulate them artificially with distractions. You live a renunciate life to some extent, right? So the mind's settling down because it hasn't got any inputs. And then you touch nice states of mind and and also you understand how to be with the breath or whatever. So then when you get to complexity, then, then the inputs that you get are not peaceful, and there and and so the result is agitation or um, whatever it is. So if you if you are holding to a kind of background view that this agitation which is come up coming up now has no value, then there's a tendency to. Um, dismiss it as being unimportant or um, even bad or or self-defeating or whatever, and you get caught up in that. But if you if you see that the natural result of a lot of stimulation is activity and agitation in the mind, you see that's kind of natural consequence. Then the question is, how much of that has to echo in your mind, how long does it have to echo in your mind, or can it can it be received in a way where it's still agitating, goes through you, and doesn't really reside in you for a long period of time. And that's where I think ideas of parami are very helpful. So for instance, I went to the National Gallery in Washington. It was 3rd of July. A lot of people, you know, a little bit different than here. A lot of people. And, you know, people look at me, they're kind, but I'm a bit of a fish in a tree, so so it, you could say, what the hell were you doing there, Vera Dhamma, we could say that, but it's very, it's very uh, 
stimulating in a way that I'm not just the senses are being bombarded right? there's noise, there's people there's a lot of naked ascetics walking around you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on so the sense, the sense realm is being um, bombarded so if I take that oh my god, these people, I'm not going there that, you mean, I did some of that so when there was a large group of people, I just avoided that. So I did some of that, but but also I just tried to say, okay, so what can I develop here now? What 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 would be really skillful to develop in this extraordinary environment for me? And I, I thought, well, if I could do space, you know, if I can if I can say, well, like like you know, the language I like to use, I say this is this is taking place in space, or this is in awareness, so I kept making awareness bigger. I also was very careful not to focus on people. You know, I, I did a lot of sense, I wanted to see the Leonardo da Vinci drawings. No, I, I focused on those. But then people, especially women, women running around, beautiful women and all that, um, I just, just didn't let my mind engage with that. So I was using um, a, a certain amount of um, body restraint, even though I'm in a place that is not not that restrained, but it wasn't a, it wasn't a bar or anything like that. And then but I just kept using space as as the reflection and developing a bar me kind of a, a virtuous quality of, of non grasping within a lot of sense input. So then it was a profitable experience. Right? Mm-hmm. Now it wasn't the same as when I come back to my kuti. You know, that's just oh, just very Delightfully tranquil and, and, and pleasant. It wasn't an unpleasant experience. It was just very foreign to me. And it, it could have become unpleasant very quickly. Mm-hmm. Very quickly. Oh, these people. I don't want these people. Right. But but I just kept in doing that. You know, opening, opening, opening. And then I could go and I, you know, focused on the on the exhibit I wanted to look at, which is quite interesting for me. And I walked away without without much residue. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it was still tiring because. Doing that is quite tiring, but but there wasn't a lot of residue left over. So the ideas of the paramitas, especially around patience and endurance, are very helpful. And if you, if you bring up that intention in the complexity of life, all of a sudden you're looking at this now as something which is useful, rather than just this damn terrible situation which I have to endure to get to the other situation which is more meditative and more contemplative. So the trouble with like retreats quite often the problem is one attaches to the one finds that the, the serenity is so beautiful that the coarseness of complexity and, and engagement becomes something that you, know, you not hate but you tend to see it's 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 of a lesser quality. It's a different quality. So if, if, if the practice has, is, is embedded in right understanding that all khandhas arise and cease and your motivation is the non-grasping of khandhas, the quality of khandhas no longer is that important and you, and you keep seeing it as a challenge. But if the quality of the khandhas is important, tranquility, beauty, harmony, etc., uh, etc., it, and, and that's not maybe not explicit in your mind, but it's kind of implicit in the way you deal with life. Mm-hmm. That the quality is important. Then any quality which opposes that becomes a hassle. Right? 
But, having said that, the Buddha said, practice in forests. Here are these forests, there are these quiet places. Certainly seek out quiet places. And, and that's very, very helpful. But not to see it as an attachment. See it as a use, useful tool. So, what can I learn from this? You know, what kind of paramita can I develop from this? That's a really, really helpful. You know, it's kind of coming to right view, isn't it? Everything, everything hinges on right understanding and right view. And if it's too much, get out of there if you can. Mm-hmm. For certain, because a lot of life is just too much. You can get burnt out or something if you have a choice. If you don't, if you're in a war zone, you just have to deal with it. Because not everyone can or wants to be a monk. It's not everyone's vocation. I find that it's hard um, like when you're in those those deeper states of concentration, or or just that you get into, just to put it lightly, like your groove with meditation, where mm-hmm. um, you're getting you, you immediately start connecting with the suttas and with the uh, um, like writings. And, other like um, senior monastics in a very profound way, like you're like, oh man. Yeah, a lot of insights come from exactly. that. Yeah. And I sometimes find that um, in my day-to-day life, uh, even around here at the monastery, although this is definitely a, with community a much easier place to practice, that um, you learn things, but almost at an artificial level in a sense. Like for instance, you might learn compromise um, or um, um, any kind of like virtue, right? Building your character, building, um, I think yourself in a in, in a very strong spiritual and mental way. But um, they feel like very surface level compared to the places you get in meditation, where things open up sometimes, and and it feels like, oh wow, I've been carrying that for 10, 15 years, and I didn't even know that. That's why I felt that way. You key into like almost a background that's always there, but yeah, like fear or something. Exactly. Like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was it was very helpful to um, for how you worded that. Um, and you see, sometimes you you get you get an insight in the refinement of meditation or the refinement of a situation, but then you have to learn about that in complexity, mm-hmm. and, that, and that's quite often you know you got to get your buttons pressed. To, to see where the mind is still has fuel to burn in that way. And so there's, a, there's an interesting kind of peace which comes from the ideas of cessation are that you, you bear with something which is, you know, some betrayal or something really difficult and you bear witness to that and you don't, you don't grasp it, you know it as a kind of and you go through this burning and then the peace there is is profound because it's it's something which has gone against tanha, which has gone against craving. And what has ceased is actually a lot of craving in the mind. And and that comes about quite often through first of all right understanding. Well just like I was at the airport. Peter Peter came, he was late. So, after 10 minutes, annoyance came up. Right? I'm important. <laughs> but I knew it as a kanda. I knew it inside out. And, uh, and I, I, I had bodily awareness of it. 
was no problem. But it was probably a good thing because the tendency to annoyance is there, right? It's given given the right situation, the tendency to annoyance comes up. So that's my vipaka kamma. It's just the result and come of how I've been conditioned in this life. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then the peace which comes from bearing witness to to that annoyance and not grasping it, knowing it, you know, keep not going to the self, takes, you know, really good practice actually. And then it ceases, and mind's really, really peaceful. And and so if if you're if your bhavana your constant reflection is about non-grasping of the khandhas, um, those fractious kind of situations you see have great value. Because now I really have to, I, mean, I can't muck about with this. Mm-hmm. If I grasp any of this, I'm just going to make a fool of myself or it will get worse. So it, it kind of compels you to be really, really attentive in a good way, yeah. in a very good way. And that larger perspective of, of non-grasping of the khandhas then, to me that's what bhavana is. You know, the khandhas arise and cease, arise and cease, and, and the non-grasping of that, to me that's what bhavana is. Not just meditation, to me that's the, the constancy of the practice. And that's the kind of background... I, I think we all, as contemplatives, we should be having some kind of a background theme that we're always engaging in. The foreground is our social engagement and our responsibilities and duties and the rest of it and our bodies and such like. But I think in the background, all of us, through our, you know, whatever conditioning we have and whatever readings we have and whatever particular insights that we've had, there's a kind of constant contemplative um, consideration going on all the time. Not just thought. It's like you kind of get some insight and say, yeah, that's it, okay. So it might be like dependent origination. So you see, oh, with this there's that, with this there's that, with this there's that. You just see that all the time. You see the sense of self arising. But the background contemplation of this is just dependently arisen. Mm-hmm. Now, as, a, as an academic exercise, that's quite complicated. But then once you understand that, like, say, for example, Paticca Samapad is pointing to how we talk about the sense of self, that it's something that arises dependent on cause and conditions. You see that all the time and you're on it. Then, then that's bhavana. Yeah, it becomes an intimate understanding. And, and, it's, and, it, yeah, and, and it's not just a, an artifact, like a fixed understanding, a two and two equals four, but it's like you're always adding and, and, and noticing the mathematics of, of, of a situation. And that's very powerful. Um, and then you're talking, you know, then you're really with the suttas or with the ajans in a way which is um, um, constant, very constant, yeah. And, and, it, and it gives you it gives you tremendous self-confidence too and you know yeah this is the Dhamma I can be with this I can be with this and maybe adding or building on that is this kind of effect on, on self-criticism mm-hmm. <clears throat> and sometimes I notice it as an object in mind uh-huh. you stupid this or you should have done that but sometimes I think the reason why it's is there another another form it seems to take is almost like it's a, a background or it's almost like a mood of the mind. It's just like there in a way that it doesn't necessarily manifest as an object. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say that's vibhavatanha? 
Okay. Yeah, that, that's what that's what I'm trying to get a better sense of. I think you know you have you have the three cravings, bhava, vibhava, and kama. So you have bhava to be you know the becoming mind, and then kama is fabulous mango juice, <laughs> and and then vibhava is this this feeling. I just don't want this existence. Yeah. I think it's very deep. Now it's not it's not like suicidal or depressed. It's just like something in I just don't want this existence. I mean I say it too strongly, but it's a kind of resistance to life in some way. Yeah, yeah. But it's so deep it's it doesn't even have a storyline in it. Yeah. Right? And and, and to, to, to know that in its kind of raw state and not let it become a, uh, a mood or a thought or a pattern or a perception means it's ending. You know, so, so Nibbana is the cessation of craving. So when you have like this kind of resistance to life or whatever and you're fully with it, you don't want to be fully with it. You want to distract it away. You want to go to Kamatanha. And when you're, you're fully with that in whatever way and you and you just allow it to be there, then your refuge is in, in knowing Dhamma. And that's the liberation from Vibhava Tanha. And so is it a kind of a right view thing? Because if I make a mistake, it feels too real that I should have done something different or that it reflects... Well, that's so strong the condition. Socially, yeah. You know, you run over a... You run into a kid on the street, you have a few problems... But but it's so conditioned into us, some kind of a self-view. That's why, like, dependent origination, you, you begin to see, oh yeah, when this happens, this self arises. It's like one drama. One drama comes on stage, and you think it's me in that situation in time, but it's just one drama comes up, and then one drama ends. And if you keep seeing that, that that's just dependently originated, you're always then in the, in the background of knowing change. And you... And, and, and it's ridiculous. You know, personality view is just absurd. I mean, the stuff that comes up in my mind of who I am, you know, it's like not logical. And it's not proud. But it comes up. I mean, it's just like, I watch it. And, wow. What's this about? And it's, you know, it's this kama. It's vipaka kama. And, and to not believe it, but not reject it. It's kind of like, like, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling annoyed at, at, at Peter for being late. Oh, I didn't know who was coming, right? Just feeling annoyed. Now, I could say very easily, 40, 40 years, very humble, and you still can't handle it. You know, you can't handle someone being late, right? That, that's self-view, right? The other is simply vipaka kama, which has come up because there's an expectation of someone meeting me or whatever. So rather than making a judgment about it, I say, oh, this is conditioned, this arises. When there's this, there's that. It comes up. And then a sense of self comes up with that drama. It's like a drama coming on. So then go back, be the audience. Don't be the actor. And the more you're the audience rather than the actor, then the play keeps... And, you, and what you see is you, the play keeps ceasing. It's there, it's gone. It's there and it's gone. And you begin to see, oh, that's just a, something that comes up and it's gone. Like in the, in the in the moment, not not like over five minutes, just, and you begin to see like cessation in in the movement of mind. 
so the, the, the feeling of, of annoyance comes up and there's a tendency to want to think about it mm-hmm. no, you watch it and there's nothing mm-hmm. and then there was some tension in the body goes, and then it comes up again and I was watching I was watching it you know then each time the kind of expectation came up then I'd look around and then when I looked around what came up was where is he you know it's, it's just conditioned stuff coming and coming and going well and I think Something that happens with I, I, I've noticed that experience. You know, um, you know, somebody at work isn't doing what um, I'm expecting them to do, ask them to do. This kind of lack of resolution, I can notice it and and kind of reflect on it. But after the twentieth time, I get impatient. Oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's like no, oh, you know, it's I, relentless. I, then I just grab at. Yeah, and what you have to do, what you have to do is notice the non-side of it, the the emptiness of it, because that same minor situation, annoyance arises, and I'm really attentive to it. It goes if I don't think about it, right. and it's not there. It's just not. And and so what we're noticing in in in, in reflections on Anicca is the non-aspect, non-greed, non-hatred, non-self, non-desire. Because it's there. We don't notice the space. We tend to notice the objects, right? So you, you start to do that, like a very obvious situation like this. It's actually tremendous for practice, isn't it? It's a kind of cliche, I know. But so you see it come up and you're really, okay, where's the emptiness here? And it's not there. And then it's there. It's not there. And then, so the 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 um, the self identity with this stuff gets less and less and less because you see it really is just a soap bubble, mm-hmm. not because someone tells me that and that's what we say in Buddhism, but really, so seeing the like non greed in the midst of greed, seeing non annoyance in the midst of annoyance, remain what what it requires is is the attentiveness to thought, and seeing that thought is just an object, and this. You know, because we get so quickly taken away. Once the thoughts take you, then you just think, "Well, maybe I should have phoned, or maybe I didn't phone right, or maybe they got the the time wrong, or oh, maybe you had an accident." Yeah, yeah, and you know, <laughs> it goes and goes. But if you if you're just if you're just using this now to see the non-side of things, there's a kind of powerful insight that comes up, like an intuition. Yeah. What is it? It's an insight, but it's an affirmation. But yeah, you know, it's just a soap bubble. And the more you affirm that, the next soap bubble has less power power over you. Some soap bubbles are overwhelming and you just have to kind of regroup. But those little things teach you. And, and they, they give you the kind of, what Lompoc Semedo talks about, intuitive awareness. Your awareness is now filled with this intuition of wisdom and understanding and insight as things come and go. You understand it, not just at a kind of intellectual analytical but like in your guts you know you really know you know what to do you know how to pay attention can I ask into that something mm-hmm. so kind of how you described it is how I, I work with that practice mm-hmm. and um, so I'll draw a parallel with uh, like a, a physical conditions you have a hand it's got lots of nerves in it and I can have a hot stove and if I touch it like ah right like you know this reaction conditions and feeling comes up because of that. Um, here we're talking about um, 
I guess, uh, an immaterial of the mental domain, and how when those conditions come, those kind of things arise. Is it possible to have, um, are those, are those kind of uh, arisings intrinsic to what it means to be a human? Or is there, or can you, like you said, when, when you're starting to grasp the, uh, the emptiness of it, like the space of it before it arises in there, does there come a point where that emptiness is so profound that um, those don't arise anymore? Or does that I think it's a dangerous question. Because if, if you say that's true, then you can very easily kind of force yourself or think it's wrong to experience something. If you say the other, it has to be, then you've taken another position. Um, so I, I think it's not a profitable question. It's not skillful. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it would give you a good result. No. I mean, I think we all ask that. Does an arahant, you know, get annoyed at the airport? <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but... But it's, it's, you know, you, you read about, I was going to ask this, of, I actually asked one Paulian, but he didn't answer. Uh, in in Lopa Cha's, some of the biographical writings of his, he's, uh, there's that famous story where he's uh, talking, and he used his hands a lot when he was talking, and there was a palmist sitting in front of him, kind of watching his palm, right, trying to, and he sees, and he, he can't believe it. He goes up and he looks real close and he says, Oh, Long Paul, I know you don't like this kind of stuff, but can I look at your palm? And Long Paul, I wasn't into that. And I said, Ah, all right, good. So he looks at his palm. I said, You've got a lot of anger. <laughs> and Long Paul says, Yeah, but I don't use it. Mm. So I asked Long Paul, Is that true? Is that true? Didn't answer. <laughs> so, but then you, you read Long Paul Liam's. Have you read No Worries? No. Oh, read that. Okay, his. <laughs> we should get a copy here and read it. Uh, he seems to have nothing going on. So maybe it's not just one way. You know, maybe like different commas experience things different ways. And I like how you. I like how you worded that though. Um, where you switch the paradigm on it because I often find. Uh, just what you, you said, I find that, um, and maybe it's why I've, I've, how I've developed this habitual thing, where when those things come up, um, even even when I'm very still, though sometimes I can break the cycle, but I find that my reflex is to just, it could, the reflex almost gets it before it's cognitized and just tries to shut it exactly, down. Exactly, yeah, and, or do something about yeah. it, ra rather than just see it as a conduct. Just this pure not self kind of going through you, and that's really hard. Mm -hmm. And if you know, like I said, if you take a position, then you know the enlightened being wouldn't be feeling this stuff. Then you then you kind of it's insidious. Mm -hmm. Whereas kandas, it just you see that teaching a not self is that whatever arises in kandas is just vipaka kama. It, it doesn't it doesn't say that whatever arises uh, is in any way. Then, then when you talk about um, like Sotapati and once returner, non-returner, the once returner, he or she <laughs> just 
um, attenuates greed and hatred. That's the second stage. Third stage, it's written that there's no more greed and hatred. And then there's restlessness and, and um, um, asmimana, things like that. So I think it, uh, those, those, I think the challenge is to just pure, purely see it as just khandas. Just, just that, in any any sense itself. I think that the question isn't so much around the quality of the kilesa that comes up; it's the identity, the self identity. That's the problem. I think that's the real say problem. More, yes. Say more about that. Well, if 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 I like like I I always say, work through a lot of fear this lifetime. Uh, so if you if you've asked me to give a talk to a whole bunch of people, and I experience the fear again. The challenge is not that I don't have the fear; it's the self-identity with the fear, right? And but the fear is very unpleasant. I thought I'd work this through. Here it goes again. Oh God, I get to give a talk, and oh, and what am I going to say? And that's the self-identity which takes it. But if I'm saying, well, it's not, it's not the fear that's the problem, it's the self-identity, then I'm really on the fear, really attentive to it. And I can see it comes up, makes the body tense, and it goes, comes up, goes, and you see it more like a pulsation or an energy. Whereas what we do, we tend to, we tend to really get very um, concerned about the quality of the kanda. Rightly so. I mean, you know, we're asked to, to like, if we have aversion, to do metta, Lost to do a suba and those balancing things are good, but at some point you have to stop. I think mucking about with it, to let it run its course and be, you know, trust, trust in that this is changing. There's something very powerful about that. You have to get to a place where you can do that. Right? So, like say, like aversion. In the beginning, we we, we we deal with aversion with like we don't kill anyone. Right? That's first step. Body. Second step. Don't abuse them verbally, right? Third step, let me get some metta going. But at one point, at some point, well, it's just a version. It's not a problem, it's just a version. You know? And it just goes through more and more. And that's upeka. Um, but it's very threatening. Those things are very threatening to our sense of what a good Buddhist is, or, or that it's permanent, or it's me, and da 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 da. When we chant, the morning chanting, Panchupadana Kanda, you know, we chant that again, the, the attachment to the five khandas, that's really the key. That's where the suffering lies. So it's the idea of attachment is, is more important than the quality of the experience. <clears throat> in terms of enlightenment, in terms of, like sila, why do we keep sila? Not just to be good people, but because that, you know, it just pollutes the mind and caught up in negative things and so on. You know, non-grasping and letting go is, is, the, is the key. James, have you got a room? You're okay? Yeah, I yeah? Yeah. And Jamie, you're okay too? We have We have but one shower. Um, so I don't know how you guys do it. We used to have one shower for all the monks too. So now we're, really, we're a bit better off. Is it okay the shower thing works out for everyone? Yeah. You just go when you can. Huh? 
And have you been told about the tick problem we have? Yeah, I've been here. Okay, you know. Yeah. I'll go in the woods and come back with like four on me. All right, okay. <laughs> Jamie, you aware of that too? I've heard, yes. Yeah, so be really careful if you if you're doing work outside or walking outside. We have mirrors. You can really look at inside your legs, you know, be really, really careful. Jamie's a physician. He treats slimes. Oh. <laughs> What's uh, what's what's the latest on blindness? Yeah. <laughs> seems very controversial. Yeah. Come again? The the treatment for Lyme disease seems very controversial. Well, uh, honestly, from where I live, I, I actually don't treat a lot of Lyme disease, mm-hmm. and I don't see it. Oh, you don't see it? Yeah, from more part of the country. Than that. So this is kind of everybody starts asking, you know, what do you do? I'm not sure. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> very general out, generalities. Yeah. But, um, not a lot of ticks. Where you from, yeah. Huh? And, um, <laughs> in terms of the schedule, is there a morning puja tomorrow morning? I'm trying to remember when the learn, lunar observance day is. Got a calendar? <laughs> the observance day is Wednesday? Yeah. So there is tomorrow morning, yeah. But there's no evening puja tomorrow. Okay. And then no, mo- no morning puja on Wednesday. We have a we have a kind of weird schedule around the lunar quarters, and so on the lunar quarters, we don't have a morning meditation, and we have an evening dharma talk, and we s- try to practice through to twelve o'clock to kind of vigil, and the day after that is a day where we don't have any work, and we don't have a morning meeting or an evening meeting, so it's a kind of day of practicing on our own, and the day before. That evening, we don't have an evening puja. It's all very confusing, so we usually announce it in the morning meeting. So that gives us a kind of weekend of being more on our own. That's grass cutting. <coughs> Cut of grass. <coughs> so did you mean when you say that to me? There was nothing there? Well, read that, no worries. Yeah, read that, the biography. We've got, it's, uh, it's astounding. Yeah, it's astounding. He's he's practicing, 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 and then he has his insights or breakthroughs or whatever, and and he says, and my mind was still, and it was like that for the whole day, and it was like that the next day, <laughs> and it's been like that ever since. It was 1970, and he says, dukkha. I don't know what dukkha is. I see. I know what the conventions are. I don't know what it is. So it's a it's a it's a fabulous statement of realization in a way which isn't canonical. And that's what I like about it. It's not claiming states of whatever, but it's just human beings saying, "Well, this is what happened. This is what I did. This is the result." You must read that. Yeah. So it probably doesn't. Get agitated. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I have a it's kind of a persistent question in regard to what kind of seems to be opposing things. And um, so what there appears to be nature and Evolution and humans showed up and, and all these things and species reproduced themselves 
and this whole thing that appears to be nature is changing and evolving and you know uh, and then the, the Buddhist the Buddha says we need to counter all those things and like the, this thing that seems completely natural where a male and female of a species come together and they reproduce or for, for humans for, for myself and most people that I've talked to there's a, an attraction this kind of sense of attraction to partnering or the opposite sex or you can see there's imagine there's beauty in that other person which seems like it's just nature sort of moving along but then we're invited to train ourselves kind of counter to that and, and completely leave aside any attraction and uh, which is it just kind of I'm working on getting to the bottom of that like how is it that nature is like opposite to what we should do if we're looking for peace it's not so much it's not a statement sort of it's just stating the, the, the limitations of natural phenomena that come and go Right, and that there is something that doesn't come and go, and to realize that non-coming and going, you somehow have to stay aloof from the coming and going, which isn't kind of a, like a moral statement against it or whatever. It's just saying there's something very subtle about consciousness and 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 and, and human capacity to be aware, and that subtlety kind of gets lost because our focus is on that which is changing. And that focus isn't wrong. It's not bad, right? So you can, you know, good family life and um, being socially engaged with the planet and all that. They're they're very noble and admirable. But the Buddha's realization, and this is where we're coming from, the Buddha senses something in in life that is not quite on with the whole birth-death cycle. And he says, well, is, is this something which is not conditioned, which is not subject to birth and death? Right? And this is really going against uh, our natural inclinations because we are very much um, concerned about birth and death and we are kind of in that realm, limited by that realm. But through his realization, he says, well, there is the unconditioned, the uncreated, the unoriginated, Nibbana, the island, the refuge uses this kind of language. And to realize that, if you're interested in this kind of peace, if you're interested in that, you have to have the capacity to not engage with the khandhas, to not engage with nature, but to witness it as change. If you can do that for long periods of time, that is like a gateway which shows you, oh yeah, there's this, this deep peace which is always possible. And what prevents that is then he talks about craving and, and craving for becoming, craving for getting rid of, and sense craving. And yet craving is necessary. If I get a nail in my foot, my desire, my body, and, and kamatanha, the craving for pleasure is very good. 
You know, I go and I get the nail out and I get healed. That's very helpful. So craving is a necessary part of life. There's nothing wrong. But if I'm always, if my attention is always taken up with the objects of craving, negatively, positively, whatever, then I don't have enough available. I'm not available to this realization that the Buddha had because my my space or my consciousness is preoccupied with things, with objects. They don't have to be bad, right? So the, you know, the teaching about non-grasping is, well, can you be not, can you stay unpreoccupied for a while? Can you not occupy your mind with objects? Can you just be unoccupied for a while and see what happens? And the way he suggests we do that is by noticing change. Because when I, when I can notice the changing nature of sense experience, my attention is no longer in the experience, it's somehow with the experience, but not of it. And that with, but not of it, is what we see as a gateway to the unconditioned, to the deathless. So it, really the kind of aspiration in Buddhism comes from some kind of, either a faith in, in, in the Buddha's realization, or something that we ourselves have touched through our own um, life experience. We've touched something which is profoundly other or different or peaceful and no object seems to be able to, to get, get us there. Right? No objects, no, no reading, no situation, no person. Um, so celibacy is certainly counter, you know, it's against the forces of nature for a man to do that. But then the forces of nature are, are, are problematic in the sense that they are always compelling us into that which is changing. So to live, to live in a body which has tanha, but to have the curiosity, perhaps, to see the pull of, of objects, but no longer go that way. And it's more like a curiosity coming from, I think, Again, either faith in the Buddhist enlightenment or our own silences that we might have touched and, and the kind of sense that that's important. That is more important than my particular yearning right now. And one begins to see yearning as an object or the sense of lack as an object. You know, as one does that, we says, oh, there's more to this than just the objective awareness that, that, that there's something here which is which is really worthwhile investigating. There's not a rejection. It can certainly sound like it. In a suit, this can sound like, you know, <laughs> on on all things sensual. It's just pointing to I think, pointing to more like limitations. That makes sense. Yeah. <clears throat> and. You know, you find in all mystical traditions, you know, people are touching something, right? It's touching something profound. And uh, many of the mystical traditions talk about poverty as a not abject social poverty, but uh, having nothing, being nothing, St. John of the Cross, those kinds of things. Um, Yeah, for me, it, it comes from my own experiences as a child and then through meditation, that, that interest in it. 
So if one is pursuing family life and so on, then when when family life becomes kind of disgruntled or difficult, then the the contemplative reflection is, well, yeah, it's supposed to be that way. Because it's born and dies, and because it's it's in the realm of change, it's supposed to be disharmonious sometime. And not a problem. But if there's a kind of idealized sense of what family life could and should be, and maybe there's a really intricate shopping list before the family starts, that you're you know, bound for disappointment because there's an there's an unreal it's not it's not natural to have a happy family life all the time, right? It's not in the nature of things. So as you see Dharma, you see the nature of things. I say, yeah, that the, the family life has its ups and downs. Monastic life has its ups and downs, but your your reference point is no longer the ups and downs, it's the awareness of change. That's the real liberation. And those three characteristics, Anicca Dukkanatta, are really pointing to the same thing. Because if I can see something is changing, I'll also see what's not really who I am. And if you understand profoundly that no object can, can be the unconditioned, because it's conditioned, you see Dukkha. So Anicca Dukkanatta are pointing to the same thing all the time. And you see it in different ways at the same time. You know, you're... At one point you see it as anatta, you see it as anicca, you see it as dukkha. Those three are always working together. Along those lines, um, same way of dealing would you deal with, say, just something as coarse as physical pain? And, and, you know, I mean, what are some strategies that along the same path you would use to deal with the physical pains that come up in, in seeing them as, as transient and as as as, do, as, condos, as as you say. Thinking thinking is the key, isn't it? You know, it's the, it's the way we think around pain. So for part of our thinking is good. We're saying, okay, this is pain. I better go see the doctor. Okay, we do we do all that. But then also just the the anxiety and tension that comes around pain. Um, that's what we can work with. So if, if we're quite attentive to thought, and, and, and it's not just the physical pain, it's the, the, uh, the thinking mind, what the thinking mind is doing, and if we're very aware of that, we'll, we'll really see how much of our pain is now added to by thought. And that which we can deal with for sure. That we can deal with for sure. So awareness of thought is... is, is um, important emotionally or, or, or physically. And then um, for monks, I, well, I, one of the problems with pain is willfulness. So like for monks who, especially young monks, you know, they'll just kind of furiously sit through pain, which is okay, but then it's not something you can sustain for very long periods of time. Sometimes they hurt themselves. So then there's the, the opposite of like some... Some young, it's interesting, there's, there's a kind of, what do you call it, cyberchondria now? In other words, I, 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 maybe I'm biased, I'm 68 years old, but it seems to me the young guys that come through, they know a lot more about medicine and they worry a lot more. It's like they, they've been on the internet and, and like, I say, you really think you got that? <laughs> Cyberchondria, you know, so so that's very you might not maybe see that. So that's one one side of, of being frightened of any kind of discomfort. 
the other side is just being willful and, and, and ignoring it totally and not being kind to the body. So the more we can be kind to the body, so a, a sense of, oh, you poor body, you know, you're, you're having a hard time. How can we help you? That, but not going to uh, um, feeling sorry for yourself or hypochondria. So you can have like kindness to the body, but not go into the thoughts of poor me, I've got a sickness. Or the other, just willfully trying to repress or push the body in ways with the body. That, you must see that as a doctor. Like, like we always see it, someone has an injury and they think they're back on it and they push themselves and they get re-injured. And that's a very common, common kind of thing. So I think body awareness then, what does the body need and, and how does the body respond to kind of a, an attention which isn't... Like, like I think in, 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 in a meditative life, you're becoming very aware of the body. You know, it's, it's reactions emotionally, it's tensions and what it can do, what it can't do. And so the, 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 for me especially, um, most of us maybe, my, my attention when I got into the monastery was just up my head. Blah, 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 all the time. And then I had to bring my attention down to the heart chakra and then to the body. So if I have physical pain, I can go like to the heart chakra and just relax. Oh, yeah, you poor guy. Your old knees are having a hard time right now. And that does the best I can for this body. So compassion, compassion for the body, but not just an idea, like really visceral kind of compassion. Um... And then the thinking mind, well, the more you can go to the non-thought, the less that's, you know, the, the, the physical is a problem. It's just part of, part of being incarnate in the body. But very few people, I think, I think, develop the capacity to know thought. You know, most, most people run with thought. They, they, they don't develop the skill of seeing thought as an object. So they very much can be consumed by thought. Whereas in, in a meditative life, you're really knowing thought as an object and seeing that, that, that there is no real thinker. You know, thought just arises conditioned on. So I'm like, I'm in the airport. <laughs> it's all recorded. <laughs> I'm in the airport. Annoyance arises and the thoughts of annoyance arise. But it's not me. It's just annoying thoughts. So the mind has a certain program around annoying thoughts. But to say it's me, if it's really me, then I just won't think that. But the thoughts came up. But then maybe if I, you know, something else happens, some other kinds of thoughts have come up. So we're beginning to see thought as, as an object rather than I am the subject. And, and hence I'm guilty for those kinds of thinking. And that's what would happen. And you're like, Why do I think that way? I shouldn't be thinking that way. But that's just another reaction to another kind of thought. So, in terms of, like I was saying to Curtis, you're trying, you're trying to see that the, the, where a thought ends. So, like with physical, with physical pain, I'm really starting to, knees hurting, and I'm going to move or not, I'm not going to move, I'm going to watch the pain. Okay, watch the pain. Where's no thought in the pain? Where's no thought? Just the pain, no thought. And then it's pure attention, pure perception. So, what we're quite often trying to do in Buddhism is get to the point before we um, before we define it, like 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 just like we do exercises, like like just like look at the the orchids behind me. You just look at the orchids, 
and just let the image come to you without comment, without definition, without saying it's white or blue. Just, just that. Pure attention before the perception. And we do exercises like that just to get to the mind to purity, pure presence. And then you apply that to more difficult things like fear or bodily pain, whatever. Chronic pain, you know, people who have chronic pain, you know, I've never had chronic pain, so. But the people, the contemplatives, meditators I've met, they usually are, are, they develop really, really very clever skills around that. And they, and the ones that I, that I know and respect, that becomes their, their real meditation. The chronic pain becomes their teacher. And they, they, they develop a whole practice around chronic pain. But I've never, you know, unfortunately, I've, I've had a pretty good body, so I haven't had that. But like, like one woman has fibromyalgia, and, yeah, really, very difficult, but she just uses it. So, so, so she disciplines her, her diet and her exercise, and she disciplines her mind. It's taken her a while, but it's become her spiritual practice, which is, which is lovely, yeah? yeah rather than just this horrible karmic burden that I have to carry, which becomes very, very heavy and onerous. We have three, three monks on benches here. So we have, we have the bad knee monastery. <laughs> you know, the, the, in, in our chanting we have ni dukkho, and ni is the negation in Pali, of dukkha, so it's non-dukkha, <laughs> but we we think it's ni dukkha, <laughs> real ni. If if you have you know if you have the background, to me, bhavana or development is around one principle that's non-grasping, non-attachment. If you understand that whether it's emotional, physical, social, whatever it is, you, 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 you're, you're just training in non-grasping. It's very simple that way. It's very simple. The complexities, of course, are like the confusion around difficult emotions or uh, what kind of health care going to get. I've got Lyme's disease or whatever. You know, that's, that's the complexity. But in terms of spiritual practice, non-grasping, that's the key. Non-grasping and... And most of the grasping takes place through thought, through thinking. So it gets really, really quite simple. And you don't become some kind of a simpleton. Oh, I can't think. But thinking becomes appropriate and, and more in line with wisdom than just kind of chronic habitual thinking. Um, one thing that I hear you and um, some of the other senior Alishans and um, some of the Burmese um, masters, etc., talk about is um, awareness or the time before um, uh, definitions and commentary come into the mind. And um, <coughs> excuse me. And uh, different traditions have that same kind of thing. Or like they talk about the cogn- cognitive aspect of the mind, like uh, clarity that comes with that. Like, and uh, I had an experience um, last year actually when I visited the monastery when, um, to help my mom uh, house it because I think she was going to China or some big vacation and I spent 
I tried to keep the momentum going, so I tried to sit in, in meditation for really long periods each day. I didn't talk to anybody. I kept no noise. Just kind of tried to do that from waking to sleeping. And um, I talked to this, talked to a venerable uh, chemical about this. I got to a point in my practice where I think it was once or twice, but once for sure that I hit this really still place um, where there felt like there was someone perceiving, but no identity without it, it was just perception. And then there felt like there was an object, or not really an object, but there was something that was being perceived, which was just almost felt like life with no definition. Like it just felt like that was the uh, character of being alive that uh-huh. everything has. And in it, um, there was, I guess, some thinking, because I wanted to try and I discerned that that was an infinitely more peaceful state than I was at, even at, even at that very calm, still place. And so I tried going over to it, and um, I couldn't. Even though it didn't really feel like there was anything holding me back, I just, like, I was fine with dying or anything. Like, I know that sounds strange, but I was fine with it, and I just wanted to get go there, but I couldn't. And I talked to Venerable uh, Chemical about this, and he gave me a really profound teaching about um, how that was still a form of becoming, because Nibbana, um, because it it's not related to any sense or anything, there's almost a, a, a non-experience when you come into contact with true Nibbana, meaning you almost, in a sense, don't remember it, because there's nothing to contact with it. I'm not wording it as well as he did. He was very elegant. Um, In some of the other traditions, it, they have like pointing out, right? Like, like when you're at a certain place, they point out the nature of the mind. They say something or um, provide a teaching to kind of. Is it the wrong uh, way to look at it to be looking for awareness in some place? Like when you get to like a state like that, am I, like, I'm going to be frankly honest, like I was kind of deluded, I thought, like, that might be it. Because it was so utterly, <coughs> just there was no content to it, but it just seemed like life and peace, absolutely. Um, where do you, how do you, where do you go to, like, awareness? Like, where, where's the, how do you discern the right place to, I'm not, I'm not wearing that very well, but like... Keep going, because, you know, in formulating your question, you can answer it yourself. Yeah, so. and it's kind of... Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is important. <laughs> so there might not be any way that you can point out awareness, and there might be no way that um, you can contact that uncreate, unconditioned, uncreated, because it's it doesn't have... It can't be a matter of time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Time's important. It can't be tomorrow. So it's timeless, a calico. And it can't be, and it can't be any condition, because the conditions are always bound by time. Happiness, unhappiness, right? And so desire is always in time. 
So what I picked up from you, I mean, I'm just interpreting what you said, but as soon as you said, I wanted to go there, I said, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the tension. Yeah. So when, when the mind becomes more and more still, more subtle kinds of desires come up. Because it's so, and 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 then, uh, if you keep referring to the third noble truth, cessation is the abandonment of craving. When you when you come to those states again, you know you'll have the experience of don't touch it. It just is what it is, and that's what like Lumpo Semedo or Lumpo Liam. They're all saying things are as they are. This is the way it is now. You know. Lompa Sumedho has this big sign carved in the bottom of the shrine. It's like this now, or it's like this. For 45 years, is that all we get? Right? It's like this. But it, you realize how profound the mind is when it's just totally with life, just as it is. Just as it is. And when we get altered states of, seemingly altered states of consciousness, they are so... Um, Wonderful and, and, and desirable. Uh, we 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 uh, we get caught in the kind of hopefulness that's, that it's permanent, and so we go away from des- from from awareness. But if your underlying attitude is that everything is pointing to awareness, you know the the, the beatific and the hellish are all pointing to awareness because they can only take place in awareness. So this is happening in awareness. The feeling of pain or the feeling is in awareness. You keep you keep keeping that one going, then more and more your reference is spacious awareness rather than content. And the more you do that, you begin to touch the unconditioned. And it's always there. It can only it can only always be there. Because it's not a matter of time. Desire is in time. Right? So any sense that there, the, you know, I'm lacking something. You know, I need to go somewhere else. That's the key that you keep watching the sense of lack. That's why Buddhism is so brilliant. It takes the sense of lack and it just stay with that. Just stay with this sense of unsatisfactory, lacking, wanting something. Just be with that. Trust, just trust awareness of that. And then, because if you trust an awareness of not having what you want, the wanting ends. And in the ending of wanting. You're free, right? But we are so conditioned to seek an object to compensate for the lack, you know, to fill up that gap that we search around. And we, you know, that's why the Four Noble Truths are really brilliant in that way. Any sense of lack, any sense of inadequacy, any sense that it's not right, that's what you, that's what you pay attention to and not run with a desire. And then desire comes up Certainly it comes up, and now you know, oh yeah, desire feels this way. And then Nibbana is the cessation of desire. And, and, it, and, it, and its brilliance, I think, is that it's defined in that via negativa, because if you define it as anything, you're caught. If you say it's peace, then, you, you know, then you're going to struggle with non-peace. Or, so it's just, that's why I like letting go, like the, the, in the Third Noble Truth, um, abandonment. Letting go, non-grasping. You know, there's another abandonment. It's a terrible word in English, right? <laughs> My parents abandoned me. So they're not, they're not, and they're not inspiring words in that way. But 
to me, the genius of it is that it doesn't give you another object to go to. It just, just keep letting go and trust in that. So the perception of change, anita, perception of an anatta, uh, letting go, non-grasping, all of that renunciation are are probably the only way you can talk about it without getting caught in a duality. Otherwise, you, you, you know, you're kind of looking for some... I think that the the characteristic, the, the dukkha lakana, the characteristic of dukkha, that anything that moves, kill it. <laughs> it's not it. It can't be it. That's a very important insight. Anything, that's be, anything that began will end. Right? And that becomes more and more profound. So you just... The tendency to go towards anything falls away. And your, and your reference is more and more... Well, it's happening in awareness, arising and ceasing in awareness. You kind of, you get this different kind of perception running, uh, and then the, you know those things are very seductive, but they produce that sense of lack, and that's what you watch. And if you watch that, then you go deeper. And, and, but 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 you you need to learn that sometimes, you know, because they're so uh, uncommon. But if that happens, you know, you'll have some insight already. No, 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 it's just, just let it be what it is. Like it went in the, in like, in the, in the, in the Dhammachaka Sutta, the, the, the Buddha talks about some insight he has, but my mind didn't get excited by it. You know, forget the line, you know, even that, you know, yeah, but my mind didn't get excited by it. I just stayed cool with it. And, and so that's, that, the reference has to be that this is in awareness. I mean, that's the way I like to think about it. I find that helpful. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Very, very elegant teaching. <laughs> um, so, this is a Sometimes what you were talking about in terms of it can't be in time, that the kind of paradox of cultivation, gradual path versus instant enlightenment, versus what we're what we're looking for things not in time. And so, do you know anything about Star Wars? Star Wars movies? Sorry, so I'm dated. Sometimes, sometimes. In, in, in Star Wars, one of the, the there's uh, um, this religion called you know like the Jedi, Jedi Knights, uh-huh. and supposedly they have these psychic powers and they call Jedi mind tricks. Uh-huh. Sometimes um, that kind of pointing to awareness um, can't be kind of somebody in time with a lack of something. It sounds like you're 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 um, people can interpret it as a Jedi mind trick, right? That, that you, don't need pro, you don't need precepts, you, know, you don't need Vinaya, there's just some kind of mental thing. And, and yet there's cultivation. Yeah. And, and so... The cultivation... How do you integrate kind of timeless with... The cultivation helps you to be timeless in the moment. Yeah. Right? So, so morality helps you to be present. <coughs> rather than caught up. And, and samadhi helps you be present. Rather than caught up. So if you see bhavana 
as a continual remembering of this present moment rather than becoming of someone who is different if you see that then you see yeah renunciation really helped me to be more present in the moment because I'll be less greedy and I'll be thinking less about buying myself a Lexus or whatever uh, or, or forgiveness you know, the more I can practice forgiveness I see yeah that if I do that then my mind will be in the past all the time thinking about some resentful situation that I've come through so we begin to see that the strategies of Sila Samadhi Panya are to really deepen present moment awareness. Mm-hmm. So it's not a contradiction. So you're cu- I'm cultivating, like, like the parami, I'm cultivating a patience because my mind is always impatient about the future. Mm-hmm. No, 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 I'll be patient. I'll back again, back again, back again. And that's coming back to the same point, the awakened mind. So someone who says, well, you don't have to do anything, good luck. Right? And that's that, like Ajahn Chah said once. Why do you think I keep these rules? You think I keep these rules because I'm afraid that you know I'm going to run away with a local cowgirl or something like that? He says, No, no, I keep these rules so you guys can keep these rules. I set an example to help you to be more mindful. It's lovely, lovely way to put it. And uh, if you if you understand you know, that 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 cultivation can be a non-becoming because you know I can I can cultivate patience and not be, I'm not trying to become a guy that's more patient mm. by cultivating patience here now here now here here now as a method as a method yeah always in the present moment then then the results are there that the sense of presence is more powerful mm. so there's no but a lot of like advice sometimes doesn't understand that in us they think we're trying to become enlightened right and, and we have some kind of agenda of trying to become enlightened but when you just see Baba Tanha can't be about becoming it has to be about letting go then there's no contradiction no contradiction at all and, and that is imp- actually a lot of a lot of us don't understand that in the be- beginning our cultivation is to become become even becoming a better person is, 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 a, is a cul-de-sac you're never perfect. And that's a really deadly one, actually. You know, to become a better person, rather than seeing that the the personality habits which are ungrateful, impatient, and arrogant prevent mindfulness of the present moment. And you see, if if I abandon the tendencies towards uh, uh, um, wanting more and develop more gratitude, I'll be more present. So, so you see it as a strategy which you're always doing here and now. And then it happens by its own. So then the awareness is more solid, more centered around all these paramitas. And, and then that takes care of itself more and more. So when I, when I began at Wapapong, well, I was not a patient guy. I get depressed a lot and complained a lot. But my te- you know, good teachers and good, good sense of what I need to do, I suppose. No, 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 back to the moment, it's good enough. Yeah, yeah, but I want to do it. No, no, it's good enough. A million times, a million times a day. But that training, cultivation, is always in the moment, in the moment, in the moment. So it's, yeah. Shall we cash in our chips, gentlemen? Thank you, Okay.